Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, Dr. Holly Replogle-Wong discusses Lucia, women and madness in opera. This recording was made as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. See Lucia de Lamamor at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from September 17 through October 9. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hi folks, I'm Holly Replogle-Wong and I'm very happy to have been invited to speak about the opera Lucia de Lammermoor today. Just a heads up, or disclaimer before I begin, my talk today is going to be about dealing with depictions of mental illness in operas from the past and the ways in which these operas are going to deal with the concept of mental illness, or to use a contemporary term, madness, reflect their contemporary understandings and attitudes about mental illness. So just a heads up there. The operatic repertory is full of stories about powerful and defiant women. And ultimately, while these characters can, you know, really be drawn within the lines of conventional patriarchal discourses and heterosexual discourses, nevertheless, the personal power and physical spectacle of a performer intertwined with the aura of her character and the music that she sings can still provide points of resistance to traditional gendered expectations in the ways that these stories usually have to end. Take, for instance, you know, characters who are evil or powerful or otherwise problematic in the ways in which they're threatening to conventional structures of order and authority. Lucretia Borgia, who, you know, is a ruler in her own right. Salome, who is a threat in many different regards. Uh, you have the religious, you have the sexual, um, and then you have Medea, who kills her own children as revenge against their father, played by Maria Callas. You know, these are women who are, who are frightening and threatening to conventional authority and are typically, you know, controlled by the end of their stories, you know, for the three that I mentioned before, Salome and Medea are punished by the end of the opera through their deaths. But for a few hours, this character was extremely disruptive. And we remember her vividly and, you know, are able to kind of revel in the spectacle of her power. And through those hours of performance, she takes this character that is very much outside of gender norms or exaggerates gender norms beyond traditional expectations. Now, the operas of Donizetti, written in the first part of the 19th century, are very curious takes on the ways in which power and madness and tragedy all intertwine within conventional and contemporary modes of discourse regarding defiant women depiction of feminine power and madness in the early 19th century bel canto Italian opera, of which Donizetti was a part, a lot of these depictions have their similarities. They're expressions of women behaving outside of gendered norms, being deviant or resistant to expectations. You know, you can have the very powerful, like Lucretia Borgia or Anne Boleyn, queens and rulers who are landowners. And then you have in our opera for today, the comparatively very genteel and feminine Lucia, whose act of resistance is refusing an arranged marriage that would make her brother more powerful, refusing that arranged marriage through violent means. 
And in operas that feature a woman in a very extreme expression of mental illness, that is through a mad scene, which is one of the things that the opera Lucia is famous for, an extended mad scene for that character. These are women who have ended up humbled and destroyed by the stories in these operas and destroyed, ultimately taken away or presumed to die or killed for a transgression of some kind they have committed. You have the very extreme grotesque versions of this as in Salome later in the 19th century by Strauss, but then you also have the much more genteel versions that you tend to encounter in Donizetti. For Donizetti's Madwoman, the device is more often than not this device of presenting madness on stage through this performance. This device is used more often than not to engender pity in the audience. And this act of depicting a madwoman is one way of sort of returning her to something like a state of innocence. You know, despite anything else that has happened, the madness kind of reverts her in some way to a more innocent state, one that is ultimately sort of absolved of any sort of violence, as in the case of Lucia. Let's talk a little bit about the social history of madness as spectacle, which is a really interesting touchstone whenever you're thinking about early 19th century Italian opera, as in the case of Lucia. Michel Foucault in Madness and Civilization from 1961 studied cultural attitudes regarding insanity in early modern Europe. He writes about, you know, 17th century institutions and social habits being developed in Western Europe that push towards a practice of confinement. And for the first time, people who are deemed mad by whatever social authorities there are in place are incarcerated. And this is motivated in part, you know, by some as, okay, you know, we need to protect these people from the outside world. But as Foucault argues, confinement of people was also motivated by the development of the modern state, a need to control behavior and a need to show that behavior is controlled also. And how madness is perceived as something that depended on the society in which it existed. Intellectual and economic structures will absolutely be part of the determination of how madness is understood within a given society. And one of the things that arises from this practice of incarceration is um, the public display of madness, which of course was a popular entertainment in Europe through the 19th century. And as Foucault reads this in his work, madness as spectacle, as he argues, was an arrangement that shows the public that those who are mad are dangerous in some way, which would then reinforce public acceptance of the decision of the state to incarcerate. And it was useful for the state to then have this kind of exhibition going on to convince the public that they need to accept legal and behavioral social codes for their own protection. And this motive of voyeurism will ultimately be a point of departure for a lot of literature and art and opera, where you have these sort of binaries of confinement and exposition, an exhibition, a frame for a display, a moral lesson encased in a sort of titillating experience, these poles all existing all at once. Elaine Showalter, um, in her work, The Female Malady, studied the ways in which madness was gendered in the 19th century. A madness come to be seen as a female malady. 
And she argues this is something that developed in part from psychiatry, generating very different explanations for stereotypically gendered portrayals of madness in men as being aggressive and combatant and women as being self-abusing or even sexually provocative. And this idea of female dementia was so fixated on by psychiatry to the point where madness was generally coded and came to be generally coded by the public as being feminized in some way. And, you know, as such, this kind of gets mapped backward onto, onto women, that women are susceptible to breakdown because of the assumed nature of their gender and of their sexuality. And this is a point wherein psychiatry and art create this sort of mutually informing dialectic. And that art starts to depict mad women and starts to sort of take for granted this linkage between madness and femininity. And it's an incredibly complex dialogue that occurs from this, with fictional madness becoming this nexus of many multiple resonances. In 1991, musicologist Susan McClary studied the ways in which women are depicted in opera and in vocal music that depict states of madness in these characters. And one of the things that McClary argues is that music sort of complicates a little bit this assumed framing of mad women as being helpless, that these women can't speak for themselves. Music, especially vocal music, complicates this because the music does give the characters a voice. It's a romanticized one, yes, it's a way for her, but at the same time, a way for her to express herself in operas or in vocal music while trying to escape powerlessness or resist repression. The music gives these characters a voice and it's a constructed and mediated one too, yes. It's written by composers and librettists as a way to present a woman character in an extreme state that is you know, grounded in assumption of power on the part of the viewer. And the viewer has the power to look at this character and pity them. But nevertheless, the music still can give this character a sense of depth, very real presence to her feelings that the audience is then invited to take part in through music and be moved by. Plus, you also have the additional complicating factor of a performer who, in the case of Lucia de Lammermoor, you know, really has to be a very fantastic performer. And this is a role that's done by a lot of stars, by a lot of divas. And you have the complication of that star's text, that diva's personal text, that can resist this assumption of power over her by a viewer. But talk a little bit about this idea of madness and musical performance, madness and power. One of the unifying modes for musical expression of madness and power that we can also observe in Donizetti's vocal writing for these operas is uh, virtuosity. And this term virtuosity, whenever you refer to somebody who has musical virtuosity, we call them virtuosos, right? And this describes a musician with extraordinary skill extraordinary technical ability over their instrument. And there's an element with the virtuoso of display involved, that there's something very flashy about the ways in which these skills are performed. And so looking at issues of identity and power are also very interesting to consider alongside thinking about virtuosity. And it's use, this 
term of the virtuosa or virtuosity. Its use since the 19th century is very entwined with this audience experience of that skill being on display. For men in the late 18th century and 19th century, being a virtuoso tended to kind of come along a little bit with the sort of titillating association of the diabolical or the supernatural. Paganini, Niccolo Paganini, the great violinist, who was said to have been possessed by the devil to have such skill on his violin. Um, Also in the 19th century, this sense of power over a group of people, Franz Liszt, the pianist and a composer who was a virtuoso at the pianist. It was said to have this power to make women swoon all around him. For a more 20th century take, the American blues guitarist Robert Johnson, who was said to have sold his soul at a crossroads to a devil in order to have such skill at the guitar. And then Jimmy Page of the group Led Zeppelin has this sort of connectivity between virtuosity, mysticism, and sexual power all at the same time. Now, whenever we're talking about, you know, the 19th century, though, the primary vehicle for musical performance for star women in the 19th century is going to be through voice as as vocal performers. And with very complex virtuosic writing for the voice that you get in an opera like Lucia, you have these opportunities for women to play these characters in operas, to be deviant in some way, to be expressive, to portray this sense of power and ability. But it's all, of course, within a narrative frame and negotiated within that frame at the same time. Now, from a singer's standpoint, doing a role like this is an opportunity to push the limits of their skill and their training. From a composer's standpoint, the ability to write this kind of music means that you can maybe go beyond the technical norms of the genre. You can write fanciful, incredible, difficult vocal lines um, that you wouldn't be able to write in a conventional aria where you would have to stick to maybe at least in the early 19th century, something much more melodic. You can write outside the norms of form. Arias, especially, you know, by the time we're in the early 19th century, arias are still, you know, kind of in these sort of blueprints. You have certain arias that do certain work within an opera, and they tend to be about you know, so long and they tend to have, you know, an A part and a B part and you return or whatever the aria's purpose is fulfilling. There's typically some kind of form where the audience is going to expect to hear a tune and then hear a different one and then hear it come back. But whenever you have, you know, a mad scene, you have as a composer an opportunity to not really conform to those expectations. One way to break with your conventions is to use this device of madness that then gives the composer the freedom to resist. And this is very interesting contradiction that you get in Western classical music and opera, where you have this need for control over what it is that you're writing, over what it is that your performers will do. And yet at the same time, you want to have these release valves, these strategies for you to be able to go beyond those norms of control. And you have this sort of paradoxical blend whenever you have mad scenes in operas of madness with order, that you can have these moments of virtuosic excess for your performer. And yet at the same time, it has to still be all be under control in some way. And that is what is celebrated then as being genius, that you can have these you know, moments that go beyond 
and yet at the same time, pull it all back for the audience so they're not completely lost. Donizetti really likes the coloratura voice, the dramatic coloratura voice. These are soprano voices that have a very high range and have a lot of agility. Dramatic coloraturas tend to have what we might describe as a slightly heavier sound. And the lyric coloratura would be a little lighter. It might sound a little more youthful, you might say, is one way of kind of describing these kinds of voices. Lucia in our study here today is typically classified as dramatic coloratura. You'll note that actually several examples of mad women in operas that fall under the dramatic coloratura category. And that's not to say that all coloratura singing characters can be aligned with madness and power because there are changing assumptions about madness and gender and power that are very changeable, right? Depending on time and location, you know, in which these operas were presented, individual perception, lots of other factors. We do nevertheless have this tendency for mad women to be either dramatic coloraturas taking advantage of the power and flair of the dramatic soprano voice that can do all of this sort of virtuosic frills and trills and whatnot, or as a dramatic soprano. So a voice that doesn't specialize in all the frills and trills, but has a lot of power to it and has a lot of stamina to be able to sing over a nice big orchestra. Now, with regard now to this idea of control being present, I mean, the voices having control over this kind of music is one aspect of it. But I wanna talk a little bit about control in terms of narrative and musical structure now. One of the things that Susan McClary points out in her study is a tendency in some of these operas for mad women to be framed by normative procedures that represent reason. So for there to be some kind of picture frame around the mad woman to serve as a kind of protection for the audience. More often than not, this is going to be staged as male displayers of mad women. So you'll have a male character that retains an authoritative representation of reason that can then protect the spectator. You have this frame of rationality and, you know, in the case of many of these operas, masculine rationality that's there to guard against whatever it is the mad woman is singing to you so that the listener can maybe identify or experience the emotion of the woman on stage and pity her but doesn't necessarily have the room to identify with her because of this framing device. It's this really interesting thing. And the musical voice of reason is present then as a reminder of here is a mad woman. These utterances that she is making are other from what sort of normativity should be. So for instance, you have in the case of Lucia and in case of other mad scenes too, there's a crowd of people that are kind of milling around describing the horror of the scene. You might have somebody come in with a report on the status of the situation. Um, and then the woman appears after this sort of framing introduction, explaining to the audience what's happening and the onstage chorus giving us the tone of the moment. Like, here is how the community is reacting to this. And as such, inviting us as an extension of the onstage community to respond in that way. And this is absolutely what happens in Lucia. 
Now, in the case of Lucia, this opera is loosely based on a real person, and the story was novelized by Walter Scott and published in 1819 as The Bride of Lammermoor, and then adopted into an Italian opera by uh, Donizetti in 1835. And Donizetti's opera centers around Lucia, a young woman who is forced into an unwanted marriage through trickery. She then murders her unwanted groom on their wedding night, thus sort of refusing the fate that she was forced into, which is, you know, as I was describing earlier in this talk, one way of resisting patriarchal expectations while retaining a core of innocence. You know, it wasn't really her that killed her unwanted bridegroom. It was, you know, the madness that sort of made her do it. And the madness shows up in her extravagant virtuosity. She is characterized earlier on in the opera as being predisposed to some virtuosity and predisposed to flights of mental fancy. Her nature is sort of given over to that which is beyond the rational. In the fountain scene, for instance, her imagination wanders as she's waiting for Edgardo, her beloved, and Edgardo coming to her. She tells him about and sings about this imagination that she had where she saw the ghost of a girl who had been murdered by an ancestor the Ravenswood, an ancestor of her beloved Edgardo because of some kind of jealous love affair. Um, and there are some productions that lean into this and even give it more of a tinge of the supernatural by actually having an actress embody that ghost on stage. But it's in Lucia's famous mad scene that she goes into a state of full derangement following her forced marriage, tricked into thinking Edgardo had left her only for him to return on her wedding day and denounce her for getting married. And it's through this mad scene that space is made for some of her most virtuosic singing. Now, the way that this scene is set up, you have a big party going on in the manor because it's the wedding day. And the family's priest then shows up in the middle of the wedding, Raimondo, and interrupts the wedding party to announce the tragedy that has just taken place and explain to the gathered guests and also by extension to us in the audience what has happened. So we have this figure of authority who lays it all out for us, provides us with the frame through which we need to see the coming display by Lucia. The wedding guests are part of this device as well. They will provide the commentary as the onstage community. And then Lucia will come on stage and give us this mournful aria section, this mournful song where she relives being with Edgardo, imagines being with him at the altar, dreams of being with him in heaven. She's sort of living and existing in the moment in this sort of shattered world of disjunct visions in this first section of her appearance as a madwoman. So we've already had the introduction happen by the family priest and the assembled guests. She's come downstairs in her bloodied wedding dress, having just killed the man she was forced to marry. And she started to sing. She's relived these moments that she had with Edgardo and um, is about to launch into the end of her opening aria in the mad scene 
and head into an extended cadenza, which is a long passage of improvised, but like planned improvised virtuosic singing. A lot of things to say about this sequence. This production is interesting, this production by the Metropolitan Opera with Natalie Desay, because the way that Donizetti wrote that whole cadenza was that it would be a duet between her and a glass harmonica, or as it's often done these days with orchestras that don't typically have glass harmonica sitting around uh, with a flute player. So it would be her voice and the flute player kind of going back and forth with each other, like a call and response, and then the two of them playing together. So requiring a good amount of coordination between the two. But I've also seen, you know, plenty of productions like this one that don't do that, that take the flute part or glass harmonica part out entirely to make it as though there's this whole music out there that she's hearing that we aren't hearing. And in the way in which it's written, we're hearing whatever it is that she's out there that she's responding to, whether it, you know, be something in the ether or some kind of mimicking of a bird call, sort of imitate the settings in which she and Edgardo would sneak out into the forest to see each other. And perhaps even a linkage there with sort of innocent freedom and nature all being intertwined with her character as well. But here they take all that out so that we are not privy to whatever it is that she's experiencing in that way. Another thing that happens here is that we lose track of the words. If you consider, for instance, if you think about words as being a structure for presenting rational thought, Lucia for a while is beyond that. She's moved into this point of wordlessness where we get all of these vocals instead. So this big, you know, coloratura section um, that's incredibly melismatic, that is lots of notes on just one syllable, um, we have a long section of that. And so the sort of rationality of words has now left her. So what happens after this cadenza that we just got, this long coloratura moment, is she has a whole other aria now to sing. So it's a lot. Like she has this whole six minute aria, then this long cadenza, and then a whole other aria afterwards. And in this aria, there's going to be a very sharp discrepancy between the text, which is pretty sinister text, and the music, which is this sort of like happy waltz. And it's a deliberate showing of disarray here, of emotional disarray, because the words, of course, are very suggestive of her personal tragedy, whereas the music 
is perhaps closer to what she's supposed to be performing here as a happy bride, or perhaps the music is what she's longing for, you know, wanting to actually be a happy bride with the man that she loved. So let's take a look at this now in the same performance. So there are additional musical techniques actually at play here, aside from the virtuosity and in addition to that lyric and music disconnect that are reinforcing all of this. Lucia in this last aria here has a tendency to change keys that resist what the form of the aria should be according to convention. So she's sort of revolting against musical convention as she's revolting against in this oblique way, the domestic expectations that were forced upon her. Finally, how do we make sense of that really powerful high E flat at the end as she's being dragged away? Of course, this is convention for the end of a character like this. Madness in opera offers this illusion of power. There's a limit to how much true resistance or productive rebellion can be enacted. When a sense madness and for these characters is something of an impasse, it's a way of throwing a wrench into the works. You know, it provides sort of a moment of power, an illusion of power, but not extended power. Um, and this is where we need to be careful whenever we're using madness as this you know, way to open up the possibilities of feminist rebellion, that this is not meant to sort of eclipse actual conversation about mental illness. You notice at the very end of this aria, you know, she's taken away, presumably to be locked away or to die of her illness. And so here's a moment where I want to acknowledge the sort of diva component of this role, both narratively and meta-narratively, where the voices of these divas are inextricably bound up in culturally constructed notions of greatness, where divas are not only figures of fascination, but potentially figures of public identification through their personal struggles that are often made public and tragedies that run the gamut from their health to their appearance to their personal romances and tragedies, all of which tends to just go right out into the public and be publicized. But even for all of this, um, the diva figure has to show resilience and the ability to make a comeback against steep odds, which then will resonate with the kinds of roles that they play. Um, and in many ways, because they're so much larger than life, playing larger than life characters, divas are culturally poised in such a way that they can call attention to and then highlight the constructedness of these roles in very valuable ways. And whenever they take on roles like this, like Lucia, that are very ambiguous with regards to portraying women and power, what power they're able to seize, 
you know, how can then a diva grapple with this narrative effect? How is the diva resistant? And what does it mean to have a story where madness is equaled to the greatness in the diva and what her abilities are? So the larger than life display is part of the glory of the piece of opera, that her moments of excess are the reason for the composition, the reason why the people come to the opera, the reason why they care. You have the corporality of the opera's medium, the singer's body, the working vocal cords, the breathing, the physical gestures. It's all lays bare of this physicality and vulnerability of the character, yes, but also of the human figure who is creating this performance before our eyes and for our ears. With these diva moments, like the long Lucia mad scene, there's this great task in front of the singer and this sort of latent anxiety in being somebody in the audience wondering, is she going to make it to the end? And with Lucia, you know, you have this moment where the courage of the diva, you know, facing down and powering through the challenges of the piece, even as the character herself, the characters that she's playing is facing down her tragic fate at the same time. And this intertwining of real and not real of fiction and reality whenever you are presented with live performance like this is part of what makes talking about Lucia and thinking about Lucia so very um, illuminating and so very exciting for us even to this day. See Lucia de Lamamor at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from September 17 through October 9. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.